Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, the Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and we're delighted to have with us today for our podcast two people who I've been fortunate enough to get to know fairly well because both of them are part of a program that the National Committee runs called our Public Intellectuals Program. And the purpose of that project is to bring together some of the best and brightest of the younger generation of China specialists in the United States to sort of nurture them in their already very impressive roles either in academia, which is the case for most of them, or in some professional job that relates to China. And our two speakers, Rory Truitz, is an assistant professor of politics and international affairs at Princeton University and is part of the latest cohort of Pitt Fellows, which just ended this past September. Ben Liebman, who's going to be sort of interviewing Rory, is part of our second cohort of Pitt Fellows, which ran from about 2009 to 2011, thereabouts. And Ben is the Robert L. Leaf Professor of Law and Director of the Center for Chinese Legal Studies at Columbia Law School. Both of them are really thoughtful and interesting people, and I just wish we had more time on this podcast to hear more about the two of them. I'm just going to start off with a quick question to each of them about how they became engaged in the China field or interested in the China field in the first place. Ben, start with you. Sure. So uh, I just consider myself incredibly fortunate in terms of my opportunities to engage with China. I was a participant in a high school exchange program between the Newton Public Schools uh, in Massachusetts and the Beijing Jingshan School in the fall of 1986. It was the first exchange program between an American public high school and a Chinese high school, uh, I believe, ever. And so I went to China, lived with the family for about three and a half months in the fall of 1986. And that's how I got into China. That's a hard story to top, Rory. What's your... It's pretty <laughs> cliche. It's pretty cliche. Um, so I, I really have this organization called Princeton in Asia to thank, which I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with. But PIA is an organization uh, that places uh, young people, college graduates, in various service posts throughout Asia. Um, and as a sophomore in college, I taught English uh, in Jishou, which is a small city in Hunan. Uh, and that was a, a really important experience for me. And, and that led to more Chinese study and sort of the cycle that many of us have where one thing leads to another. Next thing you know, uh, this is your life. This is your life. Okay. Well, this is your podcast, not mine. So I'm going to sit back and let Ben take over as sort of the moderator, questioner, and we'll see where it goes. Sure. Thanks. So... Rory, you've produced, I think, this very important and fascinating work on repression in the China field. And I wonder if you could just maybe for our listeners give a quick summary of your findings as a way of kicking us off. Yeah, sure. Um, so I should start by saying that the, the paper on the project is co-authored with Sheena Chestnut-Greetens, who's an assistant professor uh, at Missouri. And she unfortunately couldn't be here today, but she was um, a collaborator and a co-author on the project. So I wanted to make sure um, she's mentioned it and given due credit. Um, but the project is really about um, this sort of classic question for those of us who study China, which is, 
Um, to what extent um, is doing certain research topics in China, is that sensitive and can lead to some sort of bad experiences uh, on, with the Chinese government, whether it's um, having difficulty getting access to China um, or having run-ins with uh, officials from the public security apparatus in the field and so forth. And so as, as a young China scholar, and both Xin and I are, are still relatively junior, um, as you're beginning to conduct research, it's very difficult to understand um, what the risks are and where exactly the lines are and, and what, what is the responsible way to do research. And so what we set out to do was really just try to measure this systematically. Uh, and we conducted the first, to our knowledge, the first ever survey of China scholars. And we ended up getting about 600 China scholars uh, in the U.S. and Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, to respond and report about their experiences doing research. And we measured things like, have people ever been taken for tea, uh, which is kind of a euphemism for having uh, being invited by somebody from the public security apparatus, uh, to having visa issues and so forth. Um, so our main findings, it, it really depends how you look at things. But the way we categorize these sort of repressive experiences are as rare but real, uh, meaning that they actually don't happen to most people. So only. I think it was in the data, 5% of scholars reported some visa issue, only 1% to 2% report ever being blacklisted. Um, being taken for tea or being kind of interviewed by the Chinese government is about 9 to 10% of people. So these experiences uh, don't affect most scholars, uh, but they are very real and they can have a chilling effect, uh, both for the scholars that experience them and for, for other people in the field. Um, so that's, that's fascinating. Uh, were you surprised by any of your findings? Well, I think the interpretation of the findings really depends on where your starting point is. So for me personally, um, I was kind of given a little bit more courage as I, as I looked at the data and read some of the findings in the sense that um, things are bad and, and, and there are repressive experiences in the China field. Um, but in some sense, uh, there are certain boundaries the Chinese government has yet to cross. For example, uh, no one in our data reported an instance where they were physically harmed by the Chinese government. Um, and this is not the case for all social science researchers. So in Egypt, for example, I think it was two years ago, there was an Italian graduate student um, who was tortured and, and murdered in the process of doing his dissertation research. And so it's important for us to remember it is difficult to do research in China, um, but th there it, 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 could be, it could be worse. Um, and so for me personally, I was surprised that um, it gave me a little bit more courage to, to take a few more risks. Uh, but for other people I've talked to, the interpretation has been exactly the opposite, which is, wow, this confirms how, how bad things are and how, how you can get into trouble doing work on China. So it really, it's been interesting. The findings uh, have been open to interpretation and people take from it what they, what they want. What led you to undertake this project now? And I guess in asking this, I'm thinking both about the climate in China right now, but also the climate in the United States. So I, I think uh, for some of us, especially political scientists, and I imagine for the legal studies community as well, there's been a feeling within the last two or three years that there has been a shift in, in the, the research climate within China. So the projects that you could do five years ago, 10 years ago, seem to be getting more difficult to do. And so one of the things I think that led us to undertake this project was really to just try to measure things and see are things getting tangibly worse on things that we can, we can quantify. Um, and then I think in the United States, there is this broader discourse, um, and our, our report came out concurrently with a couple other reports uh, that basically levied accusations of self-censorship against the China field. There is this broader climate about whether or not um, there are infringements on academic freedom perpetuated by the Chinese Communist Party. And so I think our, 
the timing of our report, I think, was good in that we, we were able to provide some data and some insight on, the, on that set of questions. I was, as I read the paper, I was actually wondering whether we should be more surprised that there is some level of censorship and repression, mm -hmm. or maybe that we should be surprised that so much research was and still remains possible in China. You just mentioned the experience of other authoritarian systems. I don't, I don't have any real knowledge of other, what, the ease of doing research in other places, but it's always struck me that one thing that's surprising about China is that so much is possible for, for foreign researchers. That, would you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I, I think so, especially as you enter the field. Um, for example, I do survey research, and there are certain survey questions one can never ask, right? So you can never ask, do you like or dislike Xi Jinping? So there's, there are, you can never ask direct measures about individual Chinese leaders. But you can ask things like, how much do you trust the central government? Or how much do you like your local government? Have you ever had to pay a bribe? There are certain questions that you, you can get away with, and I think that would be surprising perhaps to some of our listeners. In response to how much you can get, a, get away with and how much research can be done, for me, that, that is sort of the untold story of all of this debate. So the debate really has centered around, okay, are there repressive experiences among the China field? Uh, is the China field, China scholars, guilty of self-censoring? Are we all bought? Are we all craven and cowardly? And I could easily write an article, I could write a paper about the courage of the China field and how much is being done. If you look at top political science journals, um, all the topics that are being researched and people find a way, uh, people find a way to do things on repression and propaganda and human rights, including places like Xinjiang and Tibet. And so I, I think um, it is difficult to do research in China, but I, I personally feel that there is a lot of courage to go around. And I think we should not be kind of trying to blame China scholars or accuse them of things, but we should actually be trying to support them and maybe praising them, especially those who are ethnically Chinese. I'm always, I don't know if you ever feel the same way, but as, as a foreigner, the risks we face, and this came across in our data, the risks we face are nothing compared to the risks that a Chinese citizen might face doing this type of research. And I'm consistently struck by how brave my Chinese colleagues are in the political science field in terms of the research topics that they tackle. And I'll add to that our colleagues in China as well, because I think many yeah, of us absolutely. who do many of us who do research in China often work very closely with Chinese colleagues and they're incredibly welcoming and incredibly open. And for, I can just say personally that most of my research in China would not be possible without the help of my Chinese colleagues uh, who are simply very open minded and are interested in the same research questions that I'm interested in. And, yeah, absolutely. And and I think one one thing I hope we, we should probably do a better job emphasizing in our report is that, you know, we, we have some grievances maybe that come out of this report in terms of the policymaking community about things that have happened to China scholars that just don't, don't sit well. But on the other side, it's important to remember that the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party isn't a monolith and there are plenty of officials uh, within the party or within kind of university organizations that do take a lot of risks to promote academic freedom in China and promote scholarly exchange and promote our research. And so um, some of these experiences are quite negative, but it's important not to, to paint with such a broad brush when describing the issue. So as you mentioned in the paper and as you just commented on, Rory, there's a general sense, I think, that it's a little harder to do research in China, both survey type research that you mentioned, also just uh, you know, local qualitative research, field work. I wonder if the research you have done informs at all the question of what are the best methodologies for conducting research on China in what's certainly a little bit more difficult environment and maybe a lot more difficult environment than was the situation just a few years ago. Yeah, I think the question of have, have things gotten worse is 
one that unfortunately does require a little bit of a, a complicated, nuanced answer. So if we look at kind of historians in our data set, for example, describing access to archives, this was a, a repeated theme is that archives that were once open are now closed, documents that were once accessible are now not. Documents that are still accessible now look a little bit different because maybe they've been sanitized. And so among the, to my knowledge, I'm not a historian, but to this, among the historians I've talked to, there was a sentiment that projects that you could do for your dissertation 10 years ago, you simply can't do today. And that is a problem in terms of social science research and replicability, right? So we wanna do research such that a person can come along 10 years from now, look at our results and see if they still, still hold. And so I, I think th things have gotten worse in some respects. Uh, but in terms of the things we actually measure in our data, like being taken for tea or visa issues and so forth, they haven't uh, tangibly increased in the last few years. So oh. it's, it's important to, to remember uh, that as well. It, it was indeed really striking in the paper how common the comments were from historians about the difficulty of doing archival research. And I came away wondering whether just a lot of historians had filled out your survey or whether actually things are really worse in history than in other fields. Do you get any sense for that? Um, I think, you know, for those researchers who rely on access to China, whether it's historians or anthropologists or qualitative sociologists or political scientists, I think it is harder. And to your earlier question about how is that going to impact research, I think, you know, when, anytime someone's trying to do a project on China, it's an intersection of what is interesting, what's important, and what is feasible. Um, and so if I'm advising a third-year graduate student trying to come up with their dissertation, and they come up with a project that, that I don't think they can pull off just because the access isn't there, um, we would advise against that. And so some people might say, oh, that's self-censorship. And I, I really don't, I think that's a, a mislabeling of that. I think it's just about being pragmatic and, and doing research um, given the political constraints. Yeah, just on the self-censorship point, I mean, one of the things that comes through a lot in your paper is this real emphasis by China scholars on being ethical, on protecting their contacts in China, on making sure not just that they're safe, but the people who face potentially a greater risk are safe. And I wonder if you might reflect on that uh, more going forward, whether in particular you think that scholars need to be more concerned now, or whether you think that generally China scholars actually have the right level of concern about protecting their sources and protecting their hosts in China. So this is one of the kind of heartwarming aspects of the survey, and I don't want to get cheesy, but we allowed people to weigh in on self-censorship and also research ethics and best practices. And one of the, the really dominant themes was how much people thought about this question and how deeply they care about protecting their counterparts in China, including research partners, informants, research subjects, and so forth. So I'm not terribly worried about that. I think um, there is a, there's a lot of ethical, uh, ethical thinking going on in the China field about this issue. One concern I would have is if we start and if we start to work in an environment where, as a China scholar, you start facing accusations of of self-censorship or perhaps if you're, let's say your research is remotely positive about the Chinese government, you might face some criticism at home for not being critical enough. Um, if we start to get in that type of climate where people's research is evaluated based basically on ideological grounds, um, that could lead to some, some problematic behavior and that might cause people to take risks uh, that they shouldn't be taking and, and maybe putting themselves in danger or maybe putting other people in danger. So I think that's, that's to me, the riskiest side of this self-censorship debate is that uh, we might be encouraging scholars, especially junior scholars, undergraduates who have no research experience, uh, to be doing projects that are fundamentally irresponsible in the name of trying to, to look tough or show that they have uh, credibility.
so there's a larger question which you tie into here, which ties into larger policy debates in the United States. And there's this narrative that's emerged that, you know, American universities are just in China for the money and China scholars are pro-China. And I think your study certainly adds nuance to that. There's a related point, though, I think that comes off with regard to how universities behave in China, which is I think a lot of universities in the United States, including some that have been criticized for engagement with China, take very seriously the responsibility, not just generally to their partners in China, but also to their staff in China, right? Mm -hmm. that, that you have an obligation to make sure that people working for you stay safe. And I think that that often gets lost in some of the debates in the United States about engagement with China. So this goes for scholars as well. So every time we do a project, and Ben, I'm sure you've done it, we have to fill out a lengthy form uh, for the Institutional Review Board of your university, which describes any possible risks to anybody involved in the project, not just yourself, uh, but collaborators, research partners, and so forth. And that's one of the toughest things about doing research in China is if you, you really think this through, um, you really it's, it's quite difficult to tell where the risks are and what could possibly happen to people. And so I think rightfully so, this leads people to be cautious in the projects that they do. Great. So thank you very much, Rory, and thank you, Jen, for hosting us and having us. And uh, I look forward to further discussions. Thank Thanks. you both. This was really interesting, and I would urge all of you whose tastes have been whetted by this initial discussion with both Ben and Rory to watch the video, which we are about to tape, of Ben and Rory in discussion about a variety of aspects having to do with this very interesting topic and, and one that is very much on the minds of people in the field. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.